Open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and as you turn, um, for those of you who claim to be followers of Jesus, and I know there's some especially little people in the room and others who aren't followers of Jesus, and that's fine. But for those of you who, who are followers of Jesus, we ask this question periodically um, and intentionally repeat the question sometimes throughout the year. But do you remember the moment that the gospel sounded like good news to you? Do you remember the moment or the situation where the gospel sounded like good news to you? And, and I've, I've shared this with some of you before. For me, I was in my early 20s. I was probably 20 or 21, and I was a university student raised in a religious home just in, down the street in Weatherford. I was a good church kid, um, and I, I even worked as a student pastor at a church for two years before I think I knew Jesus which is not the right order that that should go, but that's part of the story that God wove for me. So um, I'd have said at the time that I believed in God, I believed in Jesus. I could tell you the facts of kind of the, the death and resurrection, and it was a, this intellectual ascent, uh, this kind of head knowledge thing that I could tell you about, but I, I don't think that it had really impacted my heart. It hadn't changed my life. And as I was walking across campus one day, this, this thought this just struck me and hit me like a ton of bricks, that if Jesus is real, he should matter to all of life. If Jesus is real, he should matter to all of life. And it's, it's kind of the most obvious statement now, but it was huge and it's revolutionary to 20-year-old to me. And it was tied up with satisfaction and all this other kind of stuff. But the, but the gospel sounded like good news, in part because if Jesus is real, he matters. He matters to satisfaction. He matters to this aspect. He matters to that aspect. He matters to all of life. What about you? Anybody willing to share how the gospel sounded like good news to you? Again, we do this periodically, but it's a worshipful thing to get to hear from one another. So sin and salvation, sin and forgiveness. That's good news. Yeah. Anybody else? One more maybe? Yeah, the, the heaven, the reality of eternity, and the one way. Yeah. And so all, all of us could do this. And even if you're not saying it out loud, I, I, I hope you're getting to reflect on like this, this really sweet moment. Or maybe for, it was a series of moments for you, and you don't know exactly which one it was or that kind of stuff. But, but the, the point is that the gospel is really good news. It's really good news. This is even how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
he says, starting in verse three to, to the folks he's writing to in Corinth, I delivered to you, this will be on the screen as well, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And I just kind of want to anchor us there today because we're in this third week of August kind of considering ways that Christians often miss the gospel, not just in our daily lives, but also or even when reading the Bible. And so we've said, if you haven't been here, that, that Christians aren't always taught to read the Bible well. Uh, we don't always read the Bible much in, in general. And when we do, we, we camped out last week on the fact that we read it often in, in little bits, so theological bits, just looking for head knowledge, or devotional bits, just trying to, to feel good about ourselves and using the Bible for that, or just looking for rules to follow by our power, by our ability. But the problem with all that, we've said, is that when we read the Bible like that, we, we make it all about me, what I can do, what I can know, how I can feel. And that misses the heart of God's message, because the Bible is not about me. The Bible is about God. And so instead, like reading the Bible rightly causes, should cause a similar realization to the one that I had when I was 20. If, if, the, if Jesus is real, he should matter to all of life. And if Jesus is real, he and his gospel should matter to all of the Bible. His gospel is the message of the whole Bible. And so today, I just want to dive into kind of three ways to find the gospel in every command, every verse, every story of the Bible, and then see why that matters uh, to all of life. So I'm just going to pray briefly. Father, would you draw us into that? Would you open our eyes to, to read your words well and to see your true word in the midst of it? For the sake and glory of your Son, amen. All right, so the first step... Uh, to reading the Bible right. And we introduced this last week, but I'll put it up on the screen, or Evie will put it up on the screen. But the first step to reading the Bible right is to see the Bible as God's story. Okay, so, so, so we said this last week, we say this a lot because it really matters, is that everyone has some dominant story that shapes your life. Everybody has some relationship, some identity, some major life event or family history or something. We all have something that is the major story or someone that is the major dominant story of our life. Um, I have a friend who was named NFL MVP one year, and it's been like almost two decades since he, he got that award, but that award still shapes his entire existence in so many ways. Uh, another friend who uh, was, was, is of one ethnicity and was adopted into a family of another ethnicity, and that has been shaping for my friend. So what is, what is your dominant story? What, what relationship or dream or career or identity? Because whatever yours is, the Bible tells one story that is bigger and better than any award the Bible tells one story that's bigger and better than any relationship, any career, and the story of God is what we call it, and that's the greatest story in the world, and that's the story that the Bible tells over and over and over and over again. And we've talked about this before, but if we're talking about how and why we read the Bible, we need to be reminded of what this story is. And so uh, it'll be up on the screen. There's, there's kind of a, a graphic. It's a little bit small, a little bit hard to read, um, but the story of God is, is told across the entire Bible. And if you start kind of at 12 o'clock and work our way around it like a clock, if this is the story that the Bible tells, the first act of the story is, is called creation. 
What happens in creation? God makes something and calls it good. He calls it good, absolutely. Uh, You know, that lasts for about a page and a half of your Bible, and then that act of the story ends and gives way to the second act of the story, which is called rebellion or fall. It's where people break God's creation, reject God, and instead turn to something different. But the story doesn't end there. There's this third act that says, because we have a good and loving God, he, he pursues us and he makes a promise, makes a covenant with us. So the third act is called promise. And, and this is to say that God doesn't leave us without hope. The good thing that God created became broken, but that's not the end of the story. God makes a covenant to lead his people and love his people and restore his people even when we continue to reject him, even when we continue to rebel against him. And the story of God kind of culminates, if you go through the, through, through, the, through the Bible, the story of God kind of culminates in this fourth act, which is called redemption. And we see it in the Gospels. God intervenes and does what people can't do and makes wrong things right again. That's really good news, right? Can I say it again? Redemption is the culmination of the story where God intervenes, does what we can't do, and makes things right. Jesus' life and death and resurrection and reign are the culmination of his promise. But the story doesn't stop there. It continues, and through the whole New Testament, you see Act 5, which is the church. Jesus sends God the Spirit, who is the very presence of God on earth today and in us today, And God is still carrying out his promise. And God is still pursuing people who are rebelling against him. And God is doing so in part through his people as he builds for himself a people today. And at the very end of the Bible, the the book that your brother told you to read, in in the book of Revelation, you see the sixth and final act of the story, which is restoration. It says, one day King Jesus will return and he'll mend, fully mend all brokenness and fully recreate the heavens and earth and he'll he'll return creation to its original perfect state. Does that make sense? That's really fast, but that's the story that the Bible tells over and over again. that, That is the story of God. That's the one story that if you start in Genesis and work all the way around to to Revelation, that's kind of the, the meta story of the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2 is creation. Uh, starting in Genesis 3, you see rebellion, and then you see God make a covenant and promise starting in Genesis 12 through the rest of the Old Testament. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John tell the story of Jesus and redemption. And the New Testament's about the church, and Revelation is about the end. There's, there's one story that's told throughout the entire Bible. But the Bible also tells God's one story in micro form over and over and over and over again. We see creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So, for example, in Genesis 1, God makes Adam and Eve. That's good, creation. But Adam and Eve rebel, fall, rebellion. And all they want is restoration. What do Adam and Eve do? when they realize their sin, when they realize their rebellion, they, they use leaves and try to cover their shame. They, they try to seek restoration, but they can't do it on their own. So what has to happen for restoration to occur? God intervenes. An animal has to die. 
and God covers their shame in a way that they couldn't. There had to be a redeemer from outside Adam and Eve. Does that make sense? Creation, fall, they wanted restoration, but they couldn't get it. But God redeemed the brokenness. That's one little cycle in the Bible. But then comes Genesis 4. If that's Genesis 1 through 3, Genesis 4 comes next. Good logic right there. And tells the story of Cain and Abel. So God gives Adam and Eve offspring. There's two brothers. That's good. You know what's not good? When one brother offs another brother. That's bad. That's fall. That's rebellion. And then God comes and says, I've got to, I'm, I'm going to discipline you for this, Cain. And Cain says, your discipline is too great for me. I can't bear it. I can't be restored on my own. And so what does God do? He intervenes and does what Cain doesn't. And he gives Cain some mark. All we know about it in the scriptures is that it is called creatively the mark of Cain. And through that, whatever it is, God says, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to do, Cain, what you can't do. And no one will attack you without facing my wrath. That makes sense? Creation, fall, God intervenes and redeems, and there's some level of restoration. And so up and down and around and around and around goes the Old Testament stories. They're all telling one story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The New Testament tells that same story over and over and over again. So, so the life of Peter, for example, Jesus calls Peter and says, come and, and be a fisher of, of men. And that's a good thing. What does Peter do, though, toward the end of Jesus's life? He rejects and denies Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. There's three denials and three redemption moments in Peter's life where Jesus intervenes, forgives Peter, and restores him to a new charge. I know we're going quick here. Does this make sense, though? On and on and on, there's the same story over and over. The, the, the point is that reading the Bible rightly starts with seeing the Bible as God's story. It's not starting with us and what we can do and what we should do. The the Bible is about God and who he is and what he does and and especially about his redemptive work told over and over and over and over again. Is that good news? And, And if we see the Bible as this first step, if we see the Bible as the story of God, then, then we're ready, only then are we ready to take this, this next step in reading the Bible rightly. And it's going to be up on the screen as well. But the second step in reading the Bible rightly is then going, okay, if it's God's story, where do we fit? It's understanding where we fit in that story. And I think this may be one of the biggest missing pieces for a lot of followers of Jesus today. Um, back to that big circle, where are we in, in the overarching story of God? Where do, we, where do we fit? What act are we in at the moment? We're, we're the church. We're the church. We're, we're, we land, we find ourselves in God's unfolding history somewhere between his redemption, the culmination of his story, and his full and final restoration or the consummation, the coming of the kingdom at the end. Y'all, that is really, really important. It means that, that, 
that our place in history makes all the difference in the world. And, and, and it means that the way we interact with God is different than how God's people interacted before the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Have you ever thought about this? Let me, let me say it another way. Um, for the past 15 years, for, for most of the last 1,500 years, 1,500 years, history was divided between two massive eras. You know what they were called? B.C. and A.D. I know that's not you know, scientifically proper anymore, and that's B.C.E., et cetera. But for most of the last 1,500 years, it was B.C. and A.D. You know what B.C. stands for? Ben Conley. Before Christ is what B.C. stands for. You know what A.D. stands for? Not after death. It's Anno, anno Domini. It's the year of our Lord. It's Latin, so it's okay if you don't know it. But yeah, but the year of our Lord. So before Jesus, after Jesus. That, that, that was the, the dividing point, the turning point for all of history. And somehow it meant more than even the monk who created it knew. So for example, the BCAD divide, God's Old Testament people, folks who lived BC, folks who lived before Christ, were required to make daily sacrifices to atone for their sin. Do we do that today? No. Why? Because as the book of Hebrews tells us, Jesus was our full and final sacrifice. Jesus fulfilled our atonement one time for all sin and for every sin you will ever think, act, do. And so we respond to sin AD, quote unquote, different than how God's people responded to sin BC. What made the difference? The gospel, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the thing that Paul says is of first importance. Yeah, she gets it. Here's another example. Uh, The centerpiece of worship for God's old covenant people, for his BC people, was what? Where was the centerpiece of their worship? It was the temple. Yeah, it was the temple in Jerusalem. in, In there was the Holy of Holies, which symbolized God's presence dwelling. So, so the temple was where God's people would go to worship and make sacrifices. Is God's primary dwelling place on earth today still the Jerusalem temple? It's, it's not there. It's been destroyed twice over. Where's God's dwelling place, primary dwelling place in the world today? You know? Yeah, his people. It's us. So, so this will be on the screen as well. Paul says it very succinctly uh, in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells where? In you. God's spirit dwells in you. What made that change? The gospel. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The thing that Paul says is of first importance. So that's just like two examples for tonight of the difference between B.C. and A.D. as it relates to our place in God's story. There's there's literally, folks, there's hundreds more distinctions. And this may sound 
like splitting hairs, or it may sound just like empty theology, but, but y'all, I can't stress enough how important this is. Because if we, as God's AD people, as his church, as his people on earth, between his resurrection and his second coming, if we continue to think, for example, that God's presence is only in one place, then worship will be limited to a church building in an hour and a half every week. If, if we miss the fact that through the gospel we are indwelled by his spirit, then, then we deny the New Testament truth that the church is God's people and that we can and get to worship and sacrifice 24-7 in all of our life no matter where we are. Does that make sense? Or, or to the other example, if we misunderstand atonement, then our view of God's forgiveness and Jesus' work on the cross is, is really small. So here's what I mean by that. You, you, you may have heard that because of the cross, because of Jesus' death, God's removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. You've heard this? But you may have also heard that every time you sin, you're supposed to ask for God's forgiveness. You heard that? So which is it? It, it, it can't be both. There's confusion there that's woven its way into common church teaching, common Bible understanding. And, and that confusion is based on not realizing our place in the story. You know what the answer is? Which is it? You know what the answer is? Before Jesus' death and resurrection, there's a lot of commands for God's people to ask for God's forgiveness when they sin against God. Again, this is the error that they were having to make sacrifices every day for, for atonement. Do you know how many times the Bible commands God's after death, his AD, Anno Domini people? Do you know how many times the Bible commands us to ask for God's forgiveness for continued repeated sin? Any guesses? Zero. But we don't pay attention to that very often when we read the Bible. Why is it that we wouldn't have to ask God's forgiveness after his death and resurrection? It's because all of your sin has already been forgiven. You are fully free. How? Because if Jesus is real, he changes everything. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the, the extent and the, the bigness and the glory of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. That's the thing that Paul says is of first importance. Now, for the record, the Bible does still call us to ask forgiveness from people when we sin against them. And for the record, the fact that God has already forgiven us doesn't minimize our sin. Sin is real, and the New Testament does call us to something, but that something isn't go ask for God's forgiveness. What does the New Testament call us to? It's called confession. But as we confess our sin and go, God, I see something in me that I know is not of you. It's, it's, I'm, st I'm still not like you, God. As we confess, you know what the Bible gives us? It's what's called assurance. And assurance is different than repeated forgiveness over and over again. What does assurance do? Assurance reminds us of something that's already true. 
You see this difference? If we don't have to ask for God's continued forgiveness, but rather we get to go to God and say, God, I've done it again. And God reminds us, hey, I've already taken care of it. Then Jesus becomes all the more beautiful to us. And his life and death and resurrection and reign means all the more to us. It doesn't make him smaller. It makes him so much bigger, more beautiful, more glorious. Once anyone repents and turns to God for the first time for salvation, we need not ask for God's forgiveness over and over and over again. And maybe that sounds like borderline heresy because, again, it's so interwoven into our Christian culture. But again, knowing where we are in the story really matters because the gospel changes everything. You with me? All right, so there's more to say on, on all of these examples. There's, there's, again, literally hundreds of other ways that Jesus' life and death and resurrection change your life and change the way that you read the Bible that we misunderstand. And we'll look at a few more next week. But, but for today, for now, I want to close with this third and final step toward reading the Bible rightly. And it's already on the screen. Great job. And that's to see Jesus as both the hero and the redeemer, fulfillment of every story, every command, every verse. All right, talk to me. Who's the hero of, Jesus, of, of the Bible's meta story? Who's the hero of that one story throughout the whole Bible? Who is it? You can just shout it out loud. Jesus. Yeah, God, Jesus, the, the, the triune God, okay? Who's the hero of the Bible's stories told over and over and over again in the Bible's pages? Who's the hero of those stories? God? Just a little less answer on this one. This is kind of a trick question because sometimes Jesus is the, the overt and obvious hero, but sometimes the hero looks like David or Ruth or Paul, Right? Here's the deal. Every human character is imperfect and fading. Can we agree with that? Every human character is imperfect and fading, but every one of them, if they do anything good, points to Jesus, who is lasting, who is perfect, and who is the fulfillment of everything that story tells. Jesus is the true hero of every story of the Bible. But Jesus isn't just the hero. Because we said this last week, he's not just a moral example for us to follow. We do want to become more like him. But we said last week, we can't be perfect. We can't follow Jesus' example by our own power. And so what do we do? Thankfully, reading the Bible rightly also shows us he's not just the hero. He's also the redeemer. He's also the fulfillment of everything the Bible calls us to, everything the Bible reveals about God, everything the Bible teaches. Who's the redeemer in every Bible story? Who's the one who has to intervene because people can't do it? People can't reconcile themselves? Who, who, who has to intervene? It, it's always God, sometimes through another person, sometimes through events, but it's always God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Who's the source of strength and, and the power for lasting fruit and, and for true heart change and reconciliation and obedience in your life, in your faith, in your relationships with God and with people? Who, who is all that? It's only God. 
it's still the Father, Son, and Spirit. If there's any fruit in us, we get to say that that's fruit that comes from what? Whom? It's fruit of the Spirit. This is true of every Bible story, every Bible command, every Bible verse. And so to close and to close kind of practically, there's a few questions that we can ask every time we read the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, narrative, history, poetry, letters, whatever it is. And if we take a couple of these steps toward reading the Bible rightly, we can do so as we ask these questions. And hopefully these are familiar questions to you. They'll be up on the screen. But the first two questions of any passage, any verse, any text, any story we read is, who is God? What is this passage? What is this verse? What does this story say is true of God's character and true of God's being? And then second, what is God doing? What's true of his activity? What's true of his work? What's true of his promises, especially through the life, death, resurrection, reign of Jesus? And if we start with those two questions, every time we go to any scripture, then it helps us remember this story, this book, this command, this verse, this passage is primarily not about me. This is the story of God. And once we've established that, we can ask a couple more questions that help us find our place in the story. Who are we? What does this verse, passage, story, whatever, what does it say about people? Pause. Whether positive or negative things about people, because people in the Bible are both really good and they're really not good at different times. And whatever it says about people, is that also true of me? So who are we? Who are people here? And what does that say about me? And then what do people do? What do we do? After asking these other questions, we get to go, okay, what is God calling me to, leading me to, shaping me into by the power of the Spirit? Does that make sense? Those four questions help us see the Bible as God's story and help us realize our place in it. But then there's this fifth question that is perhaps the most vital question of all, How does this passage point me to Jesus? So is there prophecy that Jesus fulfills? Is there a compare and contrast in the best version of some human hero who's still not perfect or a negative example of a person? Is there something that that compares or contrasts to the beauty and glory and fullness and the heart of the message, which is Jesus? Do we see, perhaps in the Gospels, the literal works and words of Jesus? Is there foreshadowing before the life and death and resurrection of Jesus? Or is there reflection looking back to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus? For example, Paul calls Jesus the true and better Adam. So Jesus did what Adam couldn't and didn't do. Peter calls Jesus the true and better Ark who saved God's people from the floods of death. Kings of Israel pointed toward the ultimate king of all of God's people. That's foreshadowing. Theologians call that typology, if you want to know. But then we saw, what, a year and a half ago in Philippians, Paul muses as he writes his letter about how he'd be okay losing his life if it would benefit other people. But who did that in a more full way than Paul ever did? Jesus literally lost his life for the greatest benefit of all people. That's a reflection back to the perfection of Jesus. 
Here's the point. The whole Bible points to Jesus. At the start of your Christian life, in some area of your life every day, you need Jesus, and I need Jesus to be the hero and the redeemer and the fulfillment. But he's also the hero and redeemer and fulfillment of every story, every command, and every verse of the Bible. And so we read the Bible rightly when we discover the gospel, the good news, the heart of God's message, which is Jesus in every story, every command, and every verse. It's, it's, it's so important. Reading the Bible rightly is not just for empty theology. It overflows into all of our lives. And so rediscovering the gospel when we read the Bible reminds us how Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and reign impact every aspect of our life, every aspect of our faith, every aspect of our relationship. And it does so because, similar to my own realization when I was 20, if Jesus is real, he really does change everything. Amen? Thoughts, questions? Rebuke, pushback? Okay, then let's remember some of the difference that Jesus makes. If, if what Paul says is true, that, that the gospel is of first importance, that, that Jesus died and that he rose again, then one of the ways to remember this is to take this, this meal called communion. Um, every time we do this, we're, we're looking at the, these questions going, who is God and what has he done for us? And who are we and what do we do? And, and one of the answers to this is that who God is and what he's done is that he's the one who, who was our full and final sacrifice. It was through his broken body and his shed blood that, that, that we can be redeemed and we can be reconciled to God. And so if you would, take the, take the, the, the bread, the, the cracker. There's gluten-free in the back. There's individually wrapped ones in the back if you need it. If you have the individually wrapped one, just take it and eat. If you have the, the communal one, communal communion, um, dip it into the, 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 the wine or the juice. And it's by this that we say, Jesus, who we are is those in need of a savior. Who we are is those who remember what you did that we couldn't do and the way you intervened into things that we couldn't accomplish on our own. And we get to say, thank you, Jesus, for your broken body. Thank you, Jesus, for your shed blood. Take and eat. So yeah, Father, we are immensely grateful for even the symbolism of this, of this simple meal, of crackers and juice, of wafers and wine, whatever it may be, God, um, we know that it points us to something deeper. In the same way, God, would you um, not let us get lost in the crackers and juice themselves, but see the meaning behind them? Would you help us not to get lost or weighed down by the, by the literal words on the pages as we go to the scriptures, but as much as we can appreciate and, and understand them, would you help us to see your true word, your true heart, your true message and the incarnation of Jesus in every story, every command, every verse. We need your help to do this. It's in your son's name we pray.